The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Father, we're thankful for the privilege to get to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to study your word. And specifically tonight, we're thankful for the opportunity to learn how to become better defenders of your word, how to give good reasons for what we believe so that we can help those in our lives who don't know you personally, and that we can help not only by explaining the truth of the gospel to them, but by demonstrating to them that it really is true. And we pray, Father, you would make us better at giving reasons for our faith, uh, that we might minister well to other believers who might be struggling in their faith, uh, that they might boost our own confidence in the things that we've believed to be true and know to be true. Uh, but we also pray that you would do it for the sake of all those in our lives who don't know you, uh, that you would help us make, that you would help make us better reasoners uh, with them, that we might uh, be more effective at persuading them of the truth of your gospel, so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would, uh, when you make them born again, they'll respond righteously uh, to the message that they've heard and believed uh, by calling on you and trusting alone in you to save them. Again, we pray that you would do all of that for your glory, out of your love for us, and out of your love for those in our lives who don't know you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good evening, guys. It's good to see you all here tonight. We only have two more sessions left in our Proving Christianity series. We're almost done. If you remember, the approach to apologetics that we're learning is sometimes called the classical approach. There's more than one way to prove that Christianity is true. The approach that we're learning is a two-step approach. So the first step is to prove the existence of God, and then the second step is to prove that the God that exists is the God of the Bible, is the God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So we're going to finish up talking about the question of God's existence. We're going to address uh, the implications of atheism as well as one of the most common atheistic arguments. And then we're going to move on to the second step tonight and start talking about how can we prove that the God who exists is really the God who's revealed himself in Jesus. Uh, so that's where we are. We're going to save uh, a good amount of time, hopefully, if it doesn't take you too long to get through the things that you have in front of you. We're going to save a good amount of time at the end to play a game that'll really help us solidify some of the arguments that we've had a chance to learn already. So if you feel kind of fuzzy on, you know, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument that we learned, um, we'll, we'll have chances uh, later tonight to, uh, to solidify those things more. Um, but that said, uh, just as a motivation for you and an encouragement to, uh, uh, to not give up and to really try to get these things into your mind, um, I really want to encourage you as, as we're going through this to think of specific people in your life that don't know Christ, that you want to know Christ, and that giving reasons might be helpful for. Um, we all have people like that in our lives. There's many people here in this area that you don't have relationships with that are like that. And so take that and use that as a motivation to really try and get this stuff down so you can be the best, amba best ambassador for Christ that you can possibly be with them. So that said, let's go ahead and talk about uh, what some people refer to as the absurdity of life if atheism is true. The absurdity of life if atheism, uh, uh, sorry, if atheism is true. I gave you guys a handout last time that if you didn't bring back, I printed out again. The top says responding to atheism. Does everybody have, have one of those? Anybody need one of those? I'm volunteering Tina to give you one if you need one.
All right, so for these next few sections, the absurdity of life without God, the problem of evil and suffering, the summary that I'm going to give here on this page, um, uh, most of this uh, material for this part of the session um, for the handout too uh, is again coming from Craig's work. So uh, some of the books, if you want to learn more, uh, On Guard, Reasonable Faith, some of his online resources, really helpful. Um, I'm going to be uh, directly quoting or drawing from a lot of his uh, material tonight. If I'm not saying so, that's, that's where it's, uh, a lot of it's coming from. And he's got some great resources on, on, uh, on atheism and, uh, and theism. Um, uh, we've already drawn on, on those resources quite a bit in, in the course. Um, so that said, uh, atheism, we had talked about last time uh, when we learned the moral argument for God's existence, uh, poses a problem for us because if atheism is true, if God does not exist, then moral values and duties don't exist. Right? And that was one of the arguments for God's existence that we learned. Our moral senses, our moral experience testifies to the fact that objective moral values and duties really do exist. But if God doesn't exist, moral values and duties can't exist, at least in some kind of objective way, in any way that's not dependent on what we believe. And so therefore, God must exist. That was one argument for the existence of God that we learned. Um, but morality isn't the only thing that's lost if atheism is true. If atheism is true, there is also no meaning to life. There is no value, not just moral value, but I would also say beauty too. And there is no purpose in life. So you see there a trophy. This is the mnemonic device for you. If God is the MVP, the most valuable player, and you take God away, there is no MVP. There is no meaning. There is no value. And there is no purpose in life. No meaning, no value. Craig says this, quote, These three notions, purpose, value, and significance, though closely related, are conceptually distinct. They're different from each other. Purpose has to do with a goal, a reason for something. Value has to do with something's moral worth. It's being good or evil, right or wrong. I think you could also include beauty in that. And significance has to do with something's importance, why it matters. Let me ask you this. Does life ultimately matter if God does not exist? Does it have any kind of meaning or significance? if God does not exist. Obviously not, I just told you the answer. The question is, why not? Why is there no meaning if God does not exist? Remember, when we're using the word meaning, if you ask, what does meaning mean? In this case, we're talking about something's significance or importance, something mattering. Why does life not matter if God exists, if, if God doesn't exist, Bran?
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think what you said, Brandon, actually might apply more to purpose, that there's no reason for us to exist if we weren't made, created for a reason, right, for a particular goal. When we talk about life having no meaning, what we're saying is that life ultimately doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. Now, what I mean by that is not that, you know, some things don't matter relative to others. Of course they do, right? If you, um, you know, help a friend beat a drug addiction, that might matter for his health. That might matter for his happiness. But why does any of that ultimately matter at all? Why does his life matter at all? Why does mankind matter at all? Why does the universe matter at all? The universe could have not existed or it could have existed, but its existence is not of any importance. It doesn't matter for anything. You see what I'm saying? Life as a whole, the universe as a whole, doesn't matter for anything. It's not important for anything. It, it doesn't have any kind of significance for anything. Does that make sense? If God does not exist. Um, why does the existence of the universe and life and mankind actually matter? Why is it important or significant as a Christian? Why does life have significance? Okay, say because it points to a creator. <coughs> what is the most significant thing that anything could do? What's the most significant thing, the most important thing, the most meaningful thing that could be done? And in general, in general. Yeah, glorifying God, right? God is the standard of that which is most beautiful. He's the standard of that which is most good. The standard of goodness, the standard of beauty, that which by definition is the most glorious. And his glory matters. His pleasure matters because God is objectively important. Or sorry, those things are objectively important. They're objectively significant. Um, both because he's worthy of being pleased, he's worthy of glory, and because it's the best thing that anything could do. Um, not to mention the fact that it has eternal consequences for us, right? Our life has eternal meaning, eternal significance, eternal importance, because what we do now impacts us for all of eternity, right? And others too. So our lives have eternal significance, they have eternal meaning, but even if you don't think about the eternal side of things, they have meaning and significance the universe has meaning and significance because of it, it exists for the glory of God, right? And that is the most meaningful, that's the most significant thing that anything could do. Glorify God, bring pleasure to God. That's the most important thing that could be done. How about value? We won't talk about this one long because we already saw that if God does not exist, there's no basis for moral obligations. There's no basis for saying that anything is actually good or evil. Um, but the same thing, I think, also applies to beauty. When you watch a sunset or when you go out into a beautiful national park like Yosemite and you see the magnitude and the majesty of the rock formations and you think to yourself, gosh, that is so beautiful. Or when you look at a baby's face, perhaps, and you think to yourself about how beautiful it is, all you can say, if atheism is true, that there's really nothing more going on there than your brain chemicals fizzing in a pleasing way. Right? That's really all you can say. But if God exists, then that means that there is a standard of beauty that exists independent of our beliefs. 
That means that beauty is actually real. Just the same way that moral values, good and evil, is actually real. But if atheism is, is true, then there is no objective basis for moral values or for beauty. How about purpose? This one's probably one of the easiest ones to see. If God doesn't exist, how come there's no purpose in life? Yeah, there's no hope. That's right. How about this on atheism? You are an accident, right? The universe is an accident. It happened by chance. And an accident, by definition, is something that doesn't happen on purpose. Accidents don't happen on purpose. There is no reason for the universe to exist. There is no goal. There's no purpose in your life, for life in general, for the universe in general. So not only is there nothing that really matters, and not only is there no beauty or moral goodness, but there's also no purpose in life if God does not exist. So what are the implications of atheism? The implications are that life is absurd. If you remove God, the most valuable player, you also remove MVP, meaning, value, and purpose from life. Here's a... uh, a stirring quote. Um, this is uh, in Craig's book, Reasonable Faith. He quotes uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a well-known German philosopher and critic of Christianity in the 1800s. And this is in Craig's section where he's discussing the purposelessness of life. How there is no ultimate purpose without God and immortality. But I think that what he says also applies to some of these other areas too. This is an extended quote, just listen. Some of this is Nietzsche, some of this is Craig. Craig writes, quote, I'm reminded of Nietzsche's story of the madman who in the early morning hours burst into the marketplace, lantern in hand, crying, I seek God, I seek God. Since many of those standing about did not believe in God, he provoked much laughter. Did God get lost, they taunted him? Or is he hiding? Or maybe he has gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. Then, writes Nietzsche, The madman turned in their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? God is dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? The crowd stared at the madman in silence and astonishment. At last, he dashed his lantern to the ground. I have come too early, he said. This tremendous event is still on its way. It has not yet reached the ears of man. People did not truly comprehend the consequences of what they had done in killing God. But Nietzsche predicted that someday people would realize the implications of their atheism. And this this realization would usher in an age of nihilism, the destruction of all meaning and value in life. The end of Christianity, wrote Nietzsche, means the advent of nihilism. 
This most gruesome of guests is standing already at the door. Quote, our whole European culture is moving for some time now, wrote Nietzsche, with a tortured tension that is growing from decade to decade as toward a catastrophe, restlessly, violently, headlong, like a river that wants to reach the end, that no longer reflects, that is afraid to reflect. Most people still do not reflect on the consequences of atheism, and so, like the crowd in the marketplace, go unknowingly on their way. But when we realize, as did Nietzsche, what atheism implies, then his question presses hard upon us. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? There is no comfort. There is no comfort if God truly is dead, if God does not exist. There is no meaning to life. There is no value to life. There is no purpose to life. And as Craig says elsewhere, there is only despair. That is the only option we have left, despair. How easy is it to live as if there's no meaning, value, or purpose in life? How easy is it to live like that? It's not. It's not at all. In fact, many people, even if they claim to not believe in God or claim to be agnostic on the question of God, many people live as if things still matter, as if there is moral goodness and beauty, as if there is purpose in life. Many people live that way even though they have no basis for those things. But as Craig says, quote, it is impossible consistently, happily, with an atheistic worldview. That's on your handout right there. It's impossible. An atheist must be consistent or happy. He cannot be both. You can be happy by affirming that there is meaning, value, and purpose in life, but if you affirm those things, then you must be inconsistent with your worldview because there's no basis for that. The other option is you can be consistent. You can recognize that there is no meaning, value, or purpose in life. But if you do that, you will never be happy. Despair is the only option. Why is it important to recognize this? You say, I'm not an atheist. Well, there are many people in your life that maybe even if they don't deny the existence of God, aren't sure about whether God exists. And helping drawing their attention to the fact that there is no meaning, value, or purpose in life if God does not exist is a helpful way to get them to feel the stakes of this question. This is such an important question. If God does not exist, nor does meaning, value, or purpose. Now keep in mind the absence of these things doesn't prove God, but it can help people feel the importance of this question. And it should also attract them to the truth. As one author put it, we should want to help make people feel the desire for Christianity to be true. Even if they don't believe it, they should at least be attracted to the message, right? Which says that there actually is meaning, value, and purpose in life. They should at least wish it were true if they're understanding what we're saying. You are not, exa- you are not an accident. You exist for a purpose. You were designed to be an image bearer of God, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That matters. That has meaning, that has significance now and forever because God's glory objectively matters. It is objectively important because he's worthy of it and because what it means eternally for you. Beauty is real. Morality is real. That's a much better story. Most importantly, it's a true story. So any questions on the implications of atheism. Life is absurd if God does not exist. No questions? (coughs) 
Okay. So with that, let's go ahead and talk about one of the most common arguments against the existence of God. And this is a helpful one to be familiar with because it might come up in your conversations with people. In fact, uh, this actually just came up, a form of this argument came up in my conversations yesterday at the mall. So we talk about natural theology, which is basically the idea of studying God based on the natural world or using natural means like reason or science or things like that. There is also a thing called natural atheology, which is trying to disprove the existence of God using reason or philosophy. And right now, the best argument that natural atheology has going for it is sometimes called the problem of evil. And it's a terrible argument. You'll see why in just a second. But this is one of the most common ones that you'll hear from atheists today, at least, if you're talking with people. We discussed the um, shooting in our last session, right, when we were talking about a moral argument for God's existence. We discussed the recent school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, If we ask ourselves, why would God allow that type of evil and suffering to happen in the world? That question kind of gets at the heart of this argument against the existence of God. David Hume, famous philosopher in his dialogues concerning natural religion written in 1779 said this. This is, he's quoting from who we think is Epicurus. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. He's not powerful. Is he able to prevent evil but not willing? Then he is malevolent, Hume says. Is he both able and willing? Then whence is evil? Why does evil exist? I'll, I'll phrase it a different way, and you can fill this in on your, uh, on your handout there. Here's how the argument goes. If God is all-loving <coughs> and all-powerful, there would be no suffering. Premise two, there is suffering. Suffering exists. Therefore, God does not. (coughs) All right, so let's use some of the things we learned about arguments at the beginning of this training series to evaluate this. Um, what kind of argument is this, deductive or inductive? Deductive, good job. That's because the premises decrease in size, moving towards the conclusion. You have general, broader, bigger premises, a more specific conclusion. And it's important to recognize a deductive argument when you see one. Why? Because the conclusion is decisive, right? Deductive, decisive, If everything works, the conclusion is 100% certain. Now, is this a valid argument? Is this a valid argument? Remember what validity is. Yes, this is a valid argument. Remember, validity is just referring to whether the premises logically add up to the conclusion. Does this part plus this part equal this part? Yes, it does. Yeah, this is a valid argument. 
Now the next question, of course, is, is this a sound argument? And by that we mean, do these premises correspond to reality? Are these premises true? Well, let's look at this one. Is this one true? That's definitely true, right? So that means if there's a problem with this argument, the problem's got to be in this premise right here. Something's got to be wrong with this. <coughs> Take a second on your own just to think about what might be wrong with this premise. Just a few seconds in silence. What do you think's wrong with this? <coughs> hey, Brandon. I'm sorry, could you get me some water? You can think about it while you're walking. Thanks. All right. This, by the way, is called the logical problem of evil. There's different forms of the problem of evil. This is called the logical problem. What do you think is wrong with the first premise? If God exists, something has to be wrong with this first premise. Bill? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. There's an assumption here that if God is all-loving and all-powerful, it would be impossible for suffering to exist. And the assumption here that's wrong is that God could have no morally good reason for allowing suffering and evil in the world. Is that a true assumption? Is there no morally good reason, no morally justifiable reason to allow suffering and evil? It's not what the Bible says. In fact, I'm not a huge fan of the way many apologists respond to this problem because they don't actually use what I think is, the biblical, uh, is a biblical understanding of God's relationship to evil. See, the Bible says that God is actually sovereign over evil, that he's in control over evil, and that evil things are actually part of God's plan, that he decrees for evil things to happen, he even decrees to harden people's hearts. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, for example, in Exodus. He's sovereign over evil, he's sovereign over suffering. But before we get to the problem of this argument, one helpful um, you know, sometimes this is phrased not in terms of suffering, but in terms of evil. People will say there's so much evil in the world, and if God's truly all-loving and all-powerful, he wouldn't allow evil to take place. When somebody says that, if they talk about evil, you can write this down in your notes. I don't think I gave you a space to write this. But if they talk about evil, what you should do is ask them for an example. <coughs> ask them for an example. When you talk about Evil in the world, what are you thinking of? Rape, war, racism. Okay, good. Get something concrete. And then after that, ask them, why is that evil? And what have you just done? As soon as you ask that question, you're going into a moral argument for the existence of God. Because see, if good and evil actually exist, if there really are things in the world <coughs> that are evil, if racism is actually evil, if war is actually evil, if rape is actually evil, and it doesn't just depend on what we believe, then that means it depends on something outside of us. Right? And when you ask what that thing must be, 
You come to a personal being, a necessarily existent being, like we talked about in the moral argument last week. And evil actually is a proof for the existence of God, not an argument against it. But suppose somebody is smarter and they say, well, if God existed, then evil would actually exist and those two would be incompatible with each other, so no God. Or perhaps they don't even talk about evil and they just stick to suffering. There's so much suffering in the world. There's so much suffering that seems pointless, that seems to have no reason or purpose. How could God possibly allow that? Again, as Bill was talking about, there's an assumption built in here that's not true. And the assumption is that God would have no morally good reason for allowing suffering or evil. Let me ask you this. In the Bible, what is the reason that God allows evil and suffering? Do those things in and of themselves please God? No, they don't. So why does God allow it? Okay, yes, yeah, so it's a product of our sin, right? But perhaps God could have created a world where human beings never fell in the first place. There's nothing that makes me think that that's an impossibility. How come evil and suffering are allowed by God? What does the Bible say? <coughs> I think the biblical answer is very simple. Oh, so, sorry, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Bill. That's a great. That's a great biblical example. Actually, in Romans nine, Paul's talking about um, how uh, how God has some as vessels for wrath and some as vessels for mercy. Um, for time's sake, I'm sorry. I want to. Uh, uh, if, if I miss something that you guys were going to say, let me know. Um, but the, uh, the the biblical uh, um, the relationship that the Bible paints between God and suffering or God and evil is a very simple one. It says that evil and suffering, what's that, Mom? Oh, sorry, you want to repeat it really quick, Bill? <coughs> yeah, that was close. Yeah. Yeah, so the uh the reason the biblical reason why God allows suffering and evil is because suffering and evil even though those things in and of themselves do not please God are part of the plan that most glorifies God. It's part of the plan for the universe that most glorifies God. I think that is on Yeah, there it is. That's what the image of the map is supposed to be for by the way. That in order to, for the plan to get where God wants it to go, evil and suffering are, are part of that plan. <coughs> How so? How are evil and suffering part of God's plan? Well, God's plan for the universe is the plan that most glorifies him, right? Evil and suffering are part of the plan that most glorifies him in a few different ways. Either, in, either glorifies God through his judgment of evil and his just conquering of evil, his doing away of evil or in his showing mercy towards evil people through Christ. Either way, it's part of the plan that ultimately most glorifies God. Evil and suffering do not in of themselves please God, but they're part of the plan that does most glorify God because he's glorified in his response to evil, either in his just judgment of it or in his mercy towards evil people through Christ. Don't we, don't we kind of have that, the evil that comes from 
therefore the evil has to exist in the world so that we would appreciate the good. Yeah, there's definitely a, a sense in which evil existing um, maybe highlights or accentuates God's goodness, you know, similar uh, to the way that stars in the night sky shine brighter the darker the night is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the, the main idea is that evil and suffering are part of the plan for the universe that most glorifies God. Because God is glorified either in his judgment of evil and his defeat of evil or in his showing mercy towards evil people. Either way, God is glorified even though evil and suffering in of themselves are not pleasing to him. Now, interestingly, philosophically, many secular philosophers today recognize that this argument is defunct, not because of the biblical response that I just gave, uh, but because of other ways that the assumption in this premise um, has been exposed, the weakness of that assumption has been exposed. Um, I'd say it's difficult, if not impossible, I would say it's actually impossible, to claim that there's no morally good reason why God would allow suffering. It's an impossible thing to claim, and, uh, and the Bible has no such problem with evil. Again, God is sovereign over evil, and it's part of the plan that most glorifies him. So what some people do today is they say, all right, well, you know, the logical problem doesn't work, but we're just going to change this a little bit, and the way that it's modified results in what is sometimes referred to as the evidential problem of evil. <coughs> and basically the way this works is that, you know, there probably wouldn't be suffering, or there probably wouldn't be as much suffering if God existed. Therefore, God doesn't exist. So it kind of dilutes the argument a little bit, but it makes that assumption um, less blatantly false. Because even if someone can't say it's impossible for God to have a good reason for allowing evil, perhaps they can say, well, there's so much pointless suffering in the world that God probably doesn't exist, given how much suffering there is. Probably not. So, pointing to the amount of suffering, the evidence uh, that we see in the world. Um, and sometimes this focuses on pointing the suffering. Someone maybe might point to a young child, you know, getting cancer and dying or something like that. Like, what's the good purpose for that, you might say. But as Christians, and even if we're just <coughs> um, considering the biblical explanation for this, suffering still makes sense in God's story. No suffering is truly pointless. What may seem pointless to us isn't pointless to God. It's all part of the plan for the cosmos that most glorifies God, either in his triumph over evil and his judgment of evil or in his salvation from evil. Either way, it's part of the plan that most glorifies him. Now, what you'll see there on, on your notes too, something else that's really important. First, when somebody asks this question, don't ever be content with just giving a philosophical response. You always want to try to find out why are they asking this? Because I think, as Craig says, there's usually an emotional reason behind it. And that might be true. Always try to find out why are they asking this. Maybe they've lost a loved one, or they knew somebody who committed suicide, or uh, they have a friend who's gotten paralyzed or something like that, or you know, there's some kind of personal emotional obstacle in their life that's causing them to question the existence of God. And even though those answers that we gave, evil and suffering are part of the plan that most glorifies God, um, you know, even though that's still true, that might not be the best thing for them to hear right at that moment, right? Um, instead, what you might want to share, and even if you do share the philosophical response, 
What we should always share is the solution to the problem of evil. Let me ask you this. If somebody, well, actually for time's sake, I won't ask you that. What is the solution to the problem of evil? God himself is the solution to the problem of evil. God is the solution to the problem. How so? Because he does away with all suffering and sin by becoming a man to suffer himself. God became a man to suffer himself and it was through the greatest suffering and evil imaginable that God accomplished the greatest good, which is our salvation, right? The redemption of fallen humanity. And one day, the Bible says, God will do away with all suffering and all evil forever. What is the solution to the problem of evil? God is the solution to the problem of evil. Became a man and endure the greatest suffering and evil imaginable to accomplish the greatest good, our salvation, and one day we'll do away with suffering and evil forever. I think it's fair to call that good news. So if somebody has an emotional obstacle to believing in God, some suffering or evil that they've experienced in their life, the good news is what you should share with them. Don't let that opportunity pass to share the solution to the problem of evil, which is who God is and what he's done through Christ and what he will do one day in restoring creation. All right, any questions on the problem of evil? <coughs> Did you guys get everything filled in on your handouts? Is it all there? No. What, part, what parts do you need filled in still? <coughs> on the second paragraph, the blank premise is blank. Um, on the second paragraph. After oh, the first premise is unsound. Unsound is another word for not true. Evil and suffering do not please God, but they are part of the plan that most glorifies God. The greatest good is God's glory. There is no more morally justifiable reason that someone could have for doing anything than the glory of God, right? All right. Anything else missing? That's good. So, summary. When arguing for the existence of God, Craig said this, I thought that was helpful. He said sometimes just rattling off the reasons can be helpful for somebody. I think that's true. So, what I mean by that is, you know, if somebody asks you why do you believe in God, or if you're going to tell somebody why you believe in God, just saying that there are many reasons to believe God exists, and then listing some of them can be helpful. So saying, for example, that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. God is the best explanation for the design we see in living things. God is the best explanation for moral values and duties. Those are all true statements. And you can share with them that without God, if God does not exist, then there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no value in life. Again, that's not so much a proof of God as it is a way to help them realize the stakes of the question. Now, each of those arguments we learned, an argument from the beginning of the universe, an argument from design, an argument from morality, each of those arguments are complementary. They each demonstrate attributes of God that some of the others might not. So, for example, the cosmological argument demonstrated that God, because he's a timeless being, is an unchangeable being. He's a beginningless being. He's an uncaused cause. He's a, um, a self-existent being. The argument from design demonstrated that God is uh, not only an intelligent mind, a person, 
but also a staggeringly intelligent person, a brilliant person. And the moral argument demonstrated that this God is also the basis for moral values and moral duties, right? So they each contribute attributes to God, attributes of God that the, some of the others might not. There's some overlap there, but some of them, uh, you might not get intelligence or morality from the cosmological argument, for example. Um, they each add attributes that can work complementarily with the other arguments. Uh, not only that, but each of the arguments could also be viewed as working towards a cumulative case for God's existence. So each of those arguments are more or less independent lines of reasoning, right? An argument from design, an argument from morality, an argument from the beginning of the universe. Those are not necessarily dependent on each other. Each of them in and of themselves are evidences for the existence of God, proofs for the existence of God. And so when taken all together, with them all leading to the same conclusion, it makes that conclusion even more likely. Basically, what it means is that in order for atheism to be true, each of those arguments has to be false. Not just one of them, but all three of them has to be false. Now, there are many more arguments in each of those categories, uh, but if you learn just those three that we discussed, then you'll be well-equipped, I think, to handle the first step of the classical approach, which is to prove that God exists. And that is a very important one to do today. Very important to be able to demonstrate that God exists. Even for people that might believe in God, if you ask them, do you think that's something we can know for certain? Do you think that's something that can be proved? Or is it something that we kind of can choose to believe or not choose to believe and there's really no good reason either way? You might be surprised how many people will respond with the latter. All right, so that said, we are going to move on to the second step. Tina, thank you so much for cleaning this whiteboard. It looks so clean. All right, so remember the first step <coughs> is to prove that God exists. We learn arguments from the beginning of the universe, from design, and from morality. And the second step is to prove that the God who exists is the Christian God. Or the God of the Bible, you could say. Now, there's a lot of different ways that this second step could be performed. We're only going to learn two. And one of them is very simple and easy to use in evangelism, and that one we're going to learn tonight, and we'll learn another one next week. I'm just going to give you a um, brief sampling of, uh, of um, ways that the second step could be performed. So if we say, all right, God exists, but how do we know which God exists? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it the God of Islam? Is it the God of Judaism? Or is it the God of no religion, perhaps? How do we know who God is, what God is really like, if he's revealed himself in any of the religions of the world? How can we know? Well, one way that Christians could argue this is from the nature of Scripture. So they can look at the Bible and they can say, you know, over the course of over a thousand years and dozens of different authors, when we look at the Bible, there are no internal contradictions. It's internally consistent. And it's externally consistent. It corresponds with what we know from science or history or perhaps human nature, for example. And it's also been preserved accurately over the years. Now, in and of itself, I would say that those things probably aren't so much proofs for God's existence. Somebody could write them off as coincidence. But it may point in that direction to this being a book that could be from God. Another argument from the nature of Scripture is what you might find in the catechism. So our own catechism, the Baptist catechism, Keech's catechism, 
which we worked through on Sunday morning, says this. This is question five. I'm sure you remember this. This was over a year ago now, or about a year ago now. Question five, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? Does anybody know the answer that the catechism gives by any chance? Here's the Baptist catechism. The Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, its power to convert sinners and to edify saints, but the Spirit of God only, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in our hearts, is able to fully persuade us that the Bible is the Word of God. John Piper, in a comment on an adapted Baptist catechism by him, says this. He says, heavenliness, so when it's saying that the Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of his doctrine. He says heavenliness refers to the fact that the, script, that the teachings of Scripture are of such a nature that they can't be explained by mere human resources. They bear the marks of the supernatural. Quotes John 7.46 where they say no man ever spoke like this. Um, and then he also says that the unity of its parts has to do especially with the way all Scripture points to Christ. Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets bear witness. So that's an argument that could be made from the nature of Scripture heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, its power to do what? To edify saints and to convert sinners. Um, but that's not the argument that we're going to learn. Again, just to want to give you a, a sampling. Um, I'll write that up here. So scripture is one. If you want to write this down, you can, but you don't have to. Others will argue from history. And these are some of the arguments that I find most compelling, and most useful in evangelism, I should say. Uh, God has revealed himself in history, and he's acted in history. And the Bible claims that there have been historical events that have theological significance. And so some, for example, will argue from the fulfillment of prophecy. People foretold things that would happen, and guess what? They actually happened. Now, in contemporary apologetics, sometimes this is framed in a, prob a probabilistic way. People will run the odds and they'll say, what are the chances that you know, Jesus would fulfill all of these prophecies? And it comes out to be some kind of staggering number. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that type of argumentation, um, but that's the way some people use prophecies. I still do think that there's good use for prophecies. Um, and if events are foretold, that could have theological significance. And uh, one neat caveat for us is that uh, in uh, um, the 1940s, some of you might be familiar with this, uh, a set of scrolls called the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in Qumran, and, uh, and they contain some of the oldest copies of Old Testament manuscripts that we have to date. And one of those manuscripts is called the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's almost a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, and it's dated to somewhere around um, uh, 70 to 100 or more years before Christ. So it's impossible to deny, for example, that the prophecies that we have of Jesus in Isaiah were written after Jesus' life. That's just one example. Um, so prophecy is one way that people will point to how God has revealed himself in history. Another common way that people will argue for the truthfulness of Christianity is by appealing to miracles. That historically, God has performed miracles through certain people, and those miracles validate those people as messengers of God. Now, miracles can not only serve to validate somebody as a messenger of God, and they're theologically significant for that, but miracles can also communicate truths in and of themselves. So when Jesus performed miracles in the New Testament, he was demonstrating that he really was acting with God's authority, that he really was from God, similar to the way the apostles did and the prophets before them. 
Um, but perhaps the most apologetically significant miracle is the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to spend more time talking about that next week. The resurrection is significant, not just because it validates Jesus as a messenger of God too, just like an ordinary miracle, but because the, the resurrection also seems to vindicate Jesus from the charges of blasphemy for which he was put to death. Right? If God reverses his death, it's like God saying that Jesus actually didn't deserve to die. He really wasn't blasphemy. And that's a hugely theological, uh, that's a huge uh, theologically significant uh, event. And not only that, but the resurrection of Jesus also demonstrates his true messiahship. Now, the interesting thing is, since these are all historical claims we're talking about, miracles that happened in the life of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, for example, these are all historical events, supposedly historical events that the Bible says happened. They can be investigated historically, similar to the way that we investigate the fall of Rome or the American Revolution or the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Those are all facts that can be historically investigated. In the same way, the Bible's claims to miraculous events can be historically investigated. And if we can verify historically that these things actually happened, then in so doing, we're verifying all the theological implications that those events have. So we can test, we can see whether or not the Bible's message is true, whether or not God has validated messengers through miracles by examining the historical claims for these miracles, right? The same way we would investigate any other historical event. In Christianity, theology is bound up in history. It's inseparable from history. Just think of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where he says, quote, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. He says, If this didn't actually happen, if Jesus was not actually bodily, historically raised from the dead, your faith is futile. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we are most to be pitied, right? We're most to be pitied. If all we have is Christ for this life, we're most to be pitied. So we can investigate theology, theological claims, by investigating historical claims. Did these things happen? If so, those events have some huge theological significance. So much so that they demonstrate that Jesus is God and that Christianity is true. Now, one other argument which is kind of related to history is the one that we're going to learn tonight, and that's the question of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? So you can go ahead and pull out your handout. This is the one that we're going to talk about tonight. In light of what Jesus said, in light of what Jesus did, how are we to make sense of this person? Interestingly, we only have a few options, and only one of them is a good option, I think. Uh, this is a very simple argument. It's a very helpful argument for evangelism. Um, definitely one I recommend you learn. Uh, there's other reasons that people give for proving that the God of the Bible is the God that exists. There's the presuppositional approach to apologetics, which we talked about towards the beginning of this session, that Christianity is a necessary presupposition of rational thought. Um, you can give personal reasons as well, subjective reasons, how Jesus has changed your life. You can talk about the impact that Christianity has had on the world as a whole. There's more reasons, in other words, aside from the nature of Scripture or history, specifically prophecy and miracles and the identity of Jesus like we've talked about. But these two are the ones that we're going to learn, and next time we're going to focus specifically on the miracle of the resurrection, which is theologically and apologetically significant. All right. Like the arguments for the existence of God, 
these arguments are also cumulative. Again, any one of these on their own might be strong, but when you put all of these together, that makes for an even stronger case for the conclusion that the God that exists is the God of the Bible. Any questions on where we're going with this? <coughs> all right, so let's talk about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? One of the things that I like about this argument and that I like about the argument we're going to learn next week is that they work with things that the New Testament Christians would have been able to work with as well. In other words, the same type of apologetic arguments we're making today, they've been, they may have been able to make back then. So for example, for the resurrection, they can point to the fact that followers of Jesus truly believe that they saw him alive. Or for the identity of Jesus, they can talk about Here's what this person said. Here's what this person did. How do you make sense of him? Right? These are things that they could have argued with themselves. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some, John, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Notice that they're all good things that people are saying. We're going to learn some not-so-good options for Jesus, but they're all saying good things. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is one of the most important questions that anybody will ever have to answer in their life. Who is Jesus? Here's the way this argument works. <clears throat> Premise one, Jesus claimed to be God. Premise two. Oh, you should be able to write this down here. <clears throat> this is further down the page. Someone who claims to be God... is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, or God. <coughs> Premise three, Jesus is not a liar or a lunatic. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is the Lord. Now let's think about this argument for a second. What type of argument is this? Is this inductive or deductive? It's deductive, right? The statements decrease in size, moving towards the conclusion. It's either this, this, or this. It's not this, therefore it must be this. In a deductive argument, the conclusion is decisive. It's 100% true. If everything in the argument works, that means the argument must be valid. It must be sound. Is the argument valid? Do these parts add up to this? It does, right? 
Someone who claims to be God is either liar, lunatic, or Lord, and it's not a liar or lunatic, then it must be Lord. It's valid. All these parts add up to that conclusion. The question is, are these premises true? Are the premises sound? Let's take them one by one and examine them together. Um, I'm going to be drawing here from uh, Kreeft and Cicelli's book called A Handbook for Christian Apologetics, or Handbook of Christian Apologetics, sorry. They're both Catholic apologists. Uh, I think they both uh, were professors at Boston University. Uh, and their presentation of this argument is probably one of the better, if not the best, presentation of the argument that I've seen. Um, and so I'm going to be, again, kind of like I was earlier with Craig, quoting from them, paraphrasing, drawing from their material, uh, even if that's not, you know, what, even I'm not saying that that's this is a lot coming from them. Um, Gavin Orland also talks about this argument in his book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. Um, and uh, I do think that there is value in this argument today. We're, we're going to see why. So, first of all, Jesus claimed to be God. Anyone want to object to that? You might not want to, but other people will. There's two objections to this. <coughs> one is much more common than the other. And the first one is actually probably the most common objection to this argument. And the objection is that he didn't think that. Jesus didn't believe he was God. He didn't claim to be God. The passages in the New Testament that seem to suggest that Jesus viewed himself as God are not actually authentic. They're legendary developments. They're myths that kind of grew out of the historical person of Jesus, contrived at a later point by his disciples or by the early church. Now, there are clear statements that Jesus, first of all, how do we know that from, from the Bible, where does the Bible say that Jesus is God? In the Gospels, where does it say that Jesus is God or that Jesus claimed to be God? Anybody have any passages off the top of their head? <coughs> Brandon? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Grandma. You were just speaking out, so, okay. <coughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you say. Yeah, Brandon? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's probably the most explicit is in John chapter 8 where uh, he says, before Abraham was, I am, and they, the Jews pick up stones to stone him, right? Because it's a blasphemous claim. Um, there's explicit statements like that. Most of them are in John's gospel and uh, some critical scholars will look at that and see those as, uh, as legendary embellishments, that the true Jesus, the historical Jesus, didn't actually claim those things. He didn't say those things. Um, and it is true that, you know, Jesus, as Gavin Ortland put it, he said, no one thinks that Jesus walked around announcing, quote, God is a trinity and I am the second member, right? That's not what he said. That's not, that's not what he did. Ortland says, quote, in fact, Jesus often concealed his identity, charging both his disciples and others not to reveal who he was. Instead, he says, Jesus' divine self-understanding was revealed through what he did and said in the context of his ministry inaugurating the kingdom of God. And that's true. We'll see in a little bit some of the other things that Jesus did, which demonstrated that he understood himself to be God. But we can't agree with the fact that Jesus never explicitly said the words, I am God, worship me, right? 
He said some things that were very close to that, like what Brandon said in the Gospel of John. But again, the, the, the objection here is that that didn't actually happen. Jesus didn't think that. He didn't say those things. Those are kind of uh, embellishments, later embellishments of the story. Um, now, when we're talking about legendary developments, we're talking about the possibility. The option here is that Jesus was a legend. So when it says option, that's the legend option. Um, and some people have viewed this argument, liar, lunatic, Lord, as, a, uh, as an argument that doesn't work anymore um, because now there's this other objection that, uh, that Jesus actually never said those things in the first place, um, that, uh, that these claims are really legendary. And so it's probably better to frame the argument not as liar, lunatic, Lord, but as legend, liar, lunatic, Lord, because this is an option that has to be addressed in talking about this today. Um, when we're talking about legend, uh, again, we're not saying the, the question or the objection is not did Jesus ever exist. Uh, Bart Ehrman, a critical uh, New Testament scholar, uh, not a friend of Christianity by any means, said, quote, the view that Jesus existed is held by virtually every expert on the planet. That's not the question. Uh, the question is whether Jesus actually claimed to be God. Um, and, uh, and so um, it's, a, it's an objection that needs to be uh, addressed today. Now, uh, we're just going to keep this discussion very simple. Um, the problem with this objection is that there's very good historical evidence that Jesus viewed himself as being one with God. Um, there's good evidence for the general reliability of the New Testament documents, but even if you don't grant that, even if you don't accept the New Testament documents are historically reliable in general, even if you use various criteria to assess the likelihood of a historical event and you kind of filter the Gospels through those, through those uh, criteria, you still end up, even doing that with a portrait of Jesus, of Jesus um, through his words and deeds, that's very difficult to explain apart from him having some kind of divine self-understanding, um, even if you do that. So, for example, in Craig's book, he uses a number of criteria for authenticity, kind of paraphrasing or quoting from him. He uses criteria like historical fit, you know, does this story or do these uh, things match with what we know about the time and place uh, that this is supposedly taking place? Um, you know, looks at things like, are there independent early sources that attest to this? Um, looks at things like, are there embarrassing features to this story that would have been awkward or inconvenient or counterproductive for early Christians? If so, that would make it less likely to be a fabrication, right? Um, is there dissimilarity here? Um, are, are these things unlike earlier Jewish or later Christian beliefs uh, such that we couldn't explain it by, you know, those things? Are there Semitisms in here, you know, traces of Hebrew or Aramaic language that appear in the text? You know, are, is, is there coherence? Do these things fit with what we already know um, about Jesus, established facts about Jesus? So things like that, a number of criteria that are used to assess whether an event is historically authentic or not. And the interesting thing is that even if you don't assume that the New Testament documents are generally reliable, which like I said, I think there's good evidence for that anyway. Even if you don't assume that and you just use criteria um, like the ones I mentioned, to uh, establish the historical likelihood of, of certain facts about Jesus. Um, what you come away is still with, uh, you, you still come away with a pretty astonishing portrait of this person. So some of the things that come away from the accounts um, are that you have a person who preached that the kingdom of God had come and that he himself was the royal Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Um, you walk away with the fact that he at least believed to be performing miracles and that he was doing so in his own name not the name of somebody else or the name of God. Uh, you come away with a person who believed he was casting out demons, with a person that believed he had the authority to forgive sins, 
the person who believed that the eternal destiny of others was determined by their response to him, and with a person who taught with authority beyond that of a regular teacher. All of those things collectively are very difficult to explain apart from Jesus having some kind of divine self-understanding, viewing himself as divine. Not only that, though, uh, you also walk away with, with the Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Son of God, and who claimed to be the Son of Man. And each of those terms in their Old Testament context has divine connotations. So what's the point? The point is that even with a historical reconstruction based on criteria for authenticity like the ones that Craig used, you still come away with a portrait of a man who viewed himself as standing in the place of God. You walk away with a man who saw himself as having God's authority in a way that implies unity with God. So, in response to this objection, that Jesus didn't actually think that, that these are legendary developments, this so-called claim to divinity, um, the problem with that is even if we don't accept the Gospels as generally reliable, the historical evidence still suggests that Jesus saw himself as standing in God's place and having God's authority, implying unity with God. Someone wants to try to deny that Jesus claimed to be God, they're going against the historical evidence. These are not legendary claims. This is what Jesus thought of himself. Now a funny, I say funny, some people really mean this. Another possible objection to this premise is that he didn't really mean what people thought he meant. He didn't mean that. <coughs> when Jesus claimed to be God, he didn't mean it in the sense that we think of somebody being God. He meant it the same way that a guru or an enlightened mystic would mean it, in kind of an Eastern sense, a Hindu or Buddhist sense, perhaps. These uh, claims to divinity, they might say, are meant to be interpreted pantheistically, you know, the same way a pantheist might say that we are all God, everything is ultimately God, right? Jesus is talking here just like an enlightened spiritual master, that everything, when you get down to it, is God. This is an absurd claim. It's an absurd claim. Um, and it's not one that's really taken seriously, but I have heard it before, actually, at the farmer's market. Someone who I think came from India or maybe had a Hindu background or something like that tried to believe or, or tried to claim that Jesus was a guru, a spiritual master or something like that. Why is this absurd? Creepton Ciccelli put it like this, quote, for one very simple reason, because he was a Jew. Okay, Jesus was a Jew. Sorry, the other option here is guru. Let me finish their quote. No guru was ever a Jew and no Jew was ever a guru. The differences, more the contradictions, between the religious Judaism of Jesus and the teaching of all the gurus, Hindu, Buddhist, Taoist, or New Age, are so many, so great, and so obvious that you have to be a dunce or a professor to miss them. Those are their words. It is utterly unhistorical, uprooted, and deracinated to see Jesus as a Hindu and not a Jew, as a kind of generic, universal type of, quote, enlightened consciousness. You cannot ignore his Jewishness, they say. And it's true. When we compare Judaism to pantheistic thought, for example, we noticed many fundamental differences. They note some in their book, one of which includes the belief that God is distinct from creation, 
Right, that's the Jewish belief. The pantheistic belief is that God is one with creation, that everything is ultimately God. That's a big difference, right? They write this in their book, quote, if a Hindu announced to his guru, I just discovered that I am God, their response would be, congratulations, you finally found out. If a Jew had said that 2,000 years ago, their response would have been stoning, like what we find in John 8, or crucifixion, like what happens in John chapter 19. Right? Other differences include the fact that God is a personal being rather than some kind of impersonal entity, uh, that God is knowable through inspired words, writings like scripture, rather than him being unknowable except through mystical experiences. There are other differences too. The point is simply that Jesus was a Jew. He was not an Eastern guru. And when Jesus claimed to be God, he meant it in the Jewish sense, not in a pantheistic sense or even in a polytheistic sense, seeing himself as one God among many. He was a Jew and he meant, uh, when he claimed to be God, he meant it in the Jewish way. Make sense? Yeah, Marissa. Yeah, yeah. with the person of Jesus, as we're going to see, one option that we don't have for making sense of him is as a moral teacher or as a good person. Um, that's not an option for Jesus. And interestingly, that's the most common perspective that non-believers probably have of Jesus. Um, but it's not a logical option uh, to make sense of him, as we're going to see. That's one of the reasons why I think this is a good argument. All right, so Jesus claimed to be God. Those claims were not legendary developments and he didn't mean that in the guru sense. He actually claimed to be God, and he, when he claimed to be God, he meant it in the Jewish uh, sense of the, of, of the phrase. So the second premise, the first premise is sound. We all there, he claimed to be God. You were probably already there before I went to those objections, because you believe that the Bible's God's word. All right, number two. Someone who claims to be God is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. That's why this is sometimes called the liar-lunatic-lord argument. Again, it's important to amend that today to legend liar-lunatic-lord since that is probably the most common objection to this argument, actually. Not so much these ones. <coughs> All right. Are these the only options? Let's ask. Is this premise sound? Are these the only options for making sense of Jesus? If he claimed to be God, are these the only options we have? How about this? Is there another option that you can think of? Try to think of another option. These are the only options. Here's why. Kreeft and Ticelli put it like this. They say, quote, either Jesus believed his own claim to be God or he did not. If he did believe it, he was a lunatic. If he did not believe it, he was a liar. Unless, of course... He was slash is God, right? Either he believed what he was saying or he didn't. And if he believed it, then he was crazy. He was out of his mind. Or if he didn't believe it, then he was intentionally deceiving people. Unless, of course, he really was God, right? <clears throat> now, why do we have to say that if Jesus actually believed he was God but wasn't? Why do we have to say he was a lunatic? 
How come we can't, as I think Richard Dawkins may have put it, just say that he was honestly mistaken? Creeped and Chichelli put it well. They say, quote, The size of the gap between what you are and what you think you are is a pretty good index of your insanity. If I believe I am the best writer in America, I'm an egotistical fool, but I'm not insane. If I believe I am Napoleon, I am probably near the edge. If I believe I am the archangel Gabriel, I am probably well over it. And if I believe I am God, well, if I believe I am God, <laughs> you can't get much more insane than that, right? That's not an honest mistake. That is insanity. That's lunacy, if you're not actually God, of course. <coughs> uh, Lewis is famous for positioning this trilemma. Trilemma, dilemmas, two options, trilemmas, three options. Uh, He's famous for positioning this in his apologetic book, Mere Christianity. I copied the quote for you down there at the bottom. You can read along. This is just, he puts it so well. He says, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's a great quote. And he's absolutely right. Jesus did not leave that option open to us when he claimed to be God. Nor did he intend to, as Lewis said. <coughs> All right, so these are the only three options. Um, the question now is whether this third premise is true. Premise three, Jesus is not a liar or a lunatic. If that premise is true, the conclusion necessarily follows by process of elimination. He's not that, he's not that, so he must be that. <coughs> How do we know that Jesus was not a liar? That he was not deliberately deceiving people? What evidence do we have to think that he wasn't a liar? Okay, so the resurrection, yeah, we'll talk about that next week. And th this argument can kind of work with the resurrection too because it does vindicate Jesus against his false charges of blasphemy, I think. What else might we have to lead us to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't the deliberate deceiver sort? Okay, so the miracles, yeah. Yeah, that he was truly a messenger from God. And if we're just working with the, you know, critical facts that are accepted about Jesus, maybe somebody doesn't believe he did miracles. Almost everybody who knows something about Jesus, or most people who know something about Jesus, will say what about him? He was a good teacher, a good person, a moral person, right? That's a very sensible thing to say. When you read the Gospels, you definitely get the sense that this was a good man. This was a good man that we're reading about. And that's actually the blank there, the most simple rebuttal to the notion that Jesus was somehow a deliberate deceiver is that 
all of the evidence we have of his life, of his sayings, of his deeds in the gospel accounts, the ancient biographies of Jesus, all the evidence points to him being a good man. He was good. He was not a liar. Yeah, so, um, you know, again, this is something that many people recognize about Jesus. They recognize he's a good person. Um, not many people will want to call Jesus a bad man. Uh, as Creighton Cicelli put it, quote, merely a good man is one thing Jesus could not possibly be, though. By claiming to be God, he eliminated that possibility. So he can't be a good man, just a good man. But if he is a good man, then that means he's not a liar, a deliberate deceiver, causing people to think that he's really God in the flesh when he's not actually God. Now, not only would Jesus have been a liar, but because Christianity is the largest religion in the world, his deception would have led to literally the biggest deception of all time. It would have been the greatest lie of all time, which would have made him one of the greatest liars in history. Again, not something that a lot of people are comfortable with saying about Jesus, understandably so. The evidence that we have of who this person was doesn't lend itself well to that view. Furthermore, the liar possibility also seems implausible because Jesus willingly died for what was supposedly a lie, right? And most people don't willingly die for something that they know isn't true. They might die for something that they think is true and are wrong about, but they typically don't die, especially a death by crucifixion, for something that they know isn't true. Okay, so this, not plausible. And if you only have one reason that you're going to keep in your mind for why it's not a viable option, just think of his goodness. Again, many people already recognize his goodness. That's one of the most common views that people have of Jesus, some kind of good moral teacher. Many people will rightly struggle with calling Jesus a bad man, calling him a deliberate deceiver. Again, the evidence of who he was doesn't lend itself well to that. All right, how about this other option? Though? How do we know that Jesus wasn't a lunatic? What would make us think that this man wasn't out of his mind? <coughs> what were his teachings like? Right, he gave his life. Yeah, parables. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, reprove the Pharisees. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, again, kind of like a miraculous event, supernatural event. Yeah. Sensical, right. And were they just sensical, or were they maybe a little bit better than sensical? Better than sensical. They were not just good sense, they were amazing sense. Jesus was wise, very wise. And that's one of the reasons why perhaps sometimes people will recognize him as a good moral teacher. He certainly was a good teacher. The wisdom that we find coming from his lips is profound, right? It's amazing. And even if you don't want to grant that, it's at least sensical, it's at least intelligent um, and, uh, and coherent and thoughtful and... Uh, and certainly at times very deep, right? So what makes us think that Jesus wasn't a lunatic? Again, one reason is because Jesus was wise. That's the light bulb there. But we can say more. Uh, this is quoting from Creighton uh, Ticelli again. Say, quote, There are lunatics in asylums who sincerely believe they are God. The, quote, divinity complex 
is a recognized form of psychopathology. Its character traits are well known. Listen to them, here they are. Egotism, narcissism, inflexibility, dullness, predictability, inability to understand and love others as they really are, and creatively relate to others. In other words, this is the polar opposite of the personality of Jesus. Polar opposite. Ortland talked about in his book about you now he's had experiences with mentally ill people, and if you have too, then you know that when you read the pages of the New Testament or the Gospel account specifically, Jesus just doesn't seem like someone with a mental illness. That doesn't, that's not the impression that we get when we read about this person. Um, you must pick one of these options, though, <coughs> if you're going to deny that he's the Lord. The problem is, as Orland also talks about, it's hard to take one of these options seriously. I mean, are we seriously going to try to write him off as a deliberate deceiver, as one of the greatest liars in history, when everything in his life lends itself to him being a remarkably good person? Or are we really going to try to label him as clinically insane, given the wisdom that's pouring forth from this man's lips, and how polar opposite his personality is from what we know about people who think that they're God, who are mentally deranged and actually think that they're God. It's hard to take either of those options seriously. And again, one of the most common rejoinders to this argument, at least in scholarly circles or professional circles, would be this one right here, that he didn't actually say those things in the first place. But we know that's, that we know that that's not true. The evidence suggests that he really did claim to be God, so what are we going to make of this person? If he believed those things... And it wasn't true, he was a lunatic. If he didn't believe those things and he knew it wasn't true, then he was a liar. But none of those make sense. Which leaves us with this last option here by process of elimination and the conclusion that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. God has revealed himself in human history through the person of Jesus. Not only does God exist, as we've learn now from the arguments from design and from beginning and from morality, but this God has actually become a person. The creator has stepped into creation. A person has showed up on the world stage claiming to be God. A person attested to with goodness and with wisdom. We can't write him off as a liar. We can't write him off as a lunatic. The only other option is that this person really is the Lord that he's claiming to be. So that's the legend, liar, lunatic, Lord argument. I recommend having it in your back pocket. It might be especially beneficial against people who come from religions that want to recognize Jesus in some kind of way, maybe as a good moral teacher or perhaps as a prophet like in Islam. You can't just view Jesus as a prophet. You can't view him as a good moral teacher. That's not a logical option. As Lewis put it, Jesus has not left that option open for us. He did not intend to. All right, what are your questions on this? I know we're out of time. We will get to our game next week, I promise. But what are your questions on this argument? Or I hope we will get to the game next week. I shouldn't make promises because I might not be able to keep them. All right, questions on, <coughs> on this argument. My, my first husband was um, Muslim. Mm.
Yeah, and that's a good one for Muslims, yeah. Oh, I was just saying that's a good one for Muslims, right? A good prophet doesn't claim to be God if he's not God, right? You don't mess up that royally if you're a good prophet. <clears throat> All right, um, this argument can be presented very quickly to somebody when you're sharing the gospel with them or if you're trying to demonstrate that Christianity is true. It can be as simple as saying, you know, Jesus claimed to be God. Uh, those aren't legendary embellishments. The evidence suggests that he really did claim this. And if Jesus claimed that, you know, someone who claims to be God is either out of their mind, they're either a lunatic, or they're deliberately deceiving people, they're a liar, or they really are God. You know, when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, his goodness makes it very hard to believe that he was a deliberate deceiver. But the wisdom of his teachings also makes it hard to believe that he was out of his mind, that he was insane. Which leaves us with only one option, that he really is the Lord that he claimed to be. So who do you say that Jesus is? How do you make sense of this person? All right, that took all of what? A matter of a few seconds? Very simple, but very powerful argument, I think. And even if it doesn't compel somebody in the moment, it should at least give them good cause to, to go back and to think about this more themselves. Because everybody has to answer this question, right? Who is Jesus? And that is, hands down, one of the most important questions that every single person will answer in their life. You want to get the answer right. Only one of these is a good option. Uh, any other questions before we close? <coughs> All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity again uh, to consider these things tonight. Please help us to learn these arguments, to be able to demonstrate to people the absurdity of life apart from you, that there is no meaning, there is no value, there is no purpose in life if you do not exist. Help, help us, Father, to make those around us feel the stakes of this question. And please, Lord, help us to share effectively that you truly are the problem to all evil and suffering in this world, that through experiencing the greatest evil and suffering on the cross, you have saved us from evil and suffering forever, and that you will do away with those things in the new creation Father, we're thankful that you're sovereign over evil and that it truly is part of the plan that most glorifies you, that you are in control of it, and that there is a point and a purpose for it. We pray, Father, that you would help us to demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity well, that we would each revere you as the Lord that you claim to be in our hearts and help us to demonstrate to people that you truly are the Lord that you claim to be. Do that, Father, for the sake of those in our lives who don't know you, that they might be persuaded of the truthfulness of the gospel and by your grace repent and believe and be saved. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would use our faithfulness and reasoning with people to draw many to yourself and that you would reinforce our own confidence in the things that we already know to be true. All these things, Lord, we pray for your glory and in your name. Amen.